We're in the English countryside, in a shed. Outside, it's daytime and the sun is shining, but here inside the shed, it's pitch black. At first, the only things visible are flickers of faint yellow light. A small group of people are holding Victorian candlesticks on long spikes, moving methodically through the shed. But then, the light of these candles reveals a scene that seems almost otherworldly. Blanketing the floor is a miniature forest of slender crimson-red stalks, growing up to about waist height. On top of each one, like a fancy feathered hat, is a single pale green frilly leaf. This strange plant is rhubarb. And if you come at the right time of the year, you won't just see the rhubarb growing, you'll hear it. You hear them pop. A bit like a peapod popping open, it's not a loud noise at all. But when it's in eerie darkness, you just wonder when you're not expecting it, what's that popping noise? I'm Eric Grundhauser, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today, we're taking you to a part of England where farmers take years to coax their rhubarb plants into a world-renowned delicacy. They use the same tools and methods that have been used for over a century. We're taking you to the rhubarb triangle. After this... People start to whisper when they go in there. It's quite funny, really, because it's just as though they think we're going to wake the rhubarb up, that it's asleep in the darkness. Janet Oldroyd's family has been growing rhubarb for generations, so she's brought many, many curious visitors on tours through her farm's warm, dark, candle-lit rhubarb sheds. Some say it's very church-like atmosphere, whether it's because it's warm in there on a cold winter's day. Um, and as I say, maybe the candlelight plays a part. I don't know. But people find it uh, an illuminating experience, if you excuse the pun. Rhubarb has made this tiny little slice of north-central England famous. Famous enough for a nickname to have developed. They call it the Rhubarb Triangle. And Janet has a nickname, too. She's known as the High Priestess of Rhubarb. If you've ever eaten rhubarb before, maybe your mouth is reflexively puckering a little bit. It's sour, it's acidic, with thick fibrous stalks, sort of like a grosser celery. Usually, a lot of sugar is added. But rhubarb grown in the rhubarb triangle is different. It's tender, not tough. And crucially, it's already sweeter. When I'm cooking with the forced rhubarb, I don't add any sugar at all. I just cook it in pure orange juice. And there, the rhubarb is taking in the sweetness from natural fruits. So it's uh, quite good for you. This rhubarb is revered among enthusiasts as the tastiest in the world. It's like the Cadillac of rhubarb. And what makes this difference in taste and texture is just light. That's all down to light. Light increases not only the toughening and thickening of fibre in plants, not just rhubarb, but it also, in rhubarb's case, increases the acidicness 
in it, so it makes it even more tangy. Is there any way that we can grow plants, particularly vegetables, and cut out white to stop the fibre strengthening in plants? So yes, the answer to that is. The answer is a method that's been perfected by farmers in Yorkshire over more than 100 years. It's a process called forcing, because essentially this process is forcing the plants to flower early, out of season, by replicating the conditions of springtime indoors. Forced rhubarb begins with roots, which are planted outside for two summers and three winters, where they store up lots and lots of energy. Then, the roots are brought carefully inside into the forcing sheds, where they're plunged into darkness. Without access to sunlight, these rhubarb plants won't be able to photosynthesize. They'll have to draw on their own built-up stores of energy to grow. To simulate spring, growers heat up the sheds and water the plants as if they were outside, experiencing the wet spring rains of Yorkshire. And once that heat and water hits, all the energy that's been stored up just explodes. So the buds swell on the surface and swell and swell and stretch so much till you hear them pop. You often hear creaking as well in there because the rhubarb petioles can grow up to an inch a day. Then comes the magical period when the rhubarb is harvested. This also has to happen in the dark, which is where the candles come in. The candles are there so we can see. They are Victorian candlesticks um, that have spikes on them that go into the roots. Those candles give a very dim light that's not going to interfere and cause the plant to photosynthesize. So Yorkshire forest rhubarb doesn't just taste different from regular rhubarb. It looks different, too. Rhubarb grown fully outdoors has big, floppy green leaves and a tough, starchy stem, evidence, Janet explains, of photosynthesis. But by depriving the plant of light and preventing photosynthesis from happening, forced rhubarb's leaves grow frilly and pale green, almost white, and the stalks are pink or red with a gossamer-thin white skin. And when those green leaves hit the market, foodies and chefs go wild. Rhubarb wasn't always grown in this corner of England. In fact, it started out halfway across the world. It's a native of Siberia, originally found on the banks of the River Volga. So it likes a cooler temperature, a cooler summer, and it likes moisture. In ancient times, rhubarb was prized not because of its taste, but because of its medicinal properties. It was used as a cure for stomach ailments, apparently it makes a great laxative, and even for venereal disease. Sooner or later, people got wise to the fact that it was nice to eat, too. By the 1800s or so, it had made its way to England, where the process of forcing rhubarb was discovered. By accident, by workers in London's Chelsea Garden. Some workmen were digging a trench and accidentally threw the soil over some dormant roots in the depth of winter. By the time they took the soil off, they noticed the little pink shoots sticking up. The horticulturists there tasted the rhubarb and found it was far, far superior to any rhubarb they'd ever tasted. And rhubarb really took off especially in Yorkshire, where it was plenty wet and there were long, cold frosts. It made for the perfect climate to grow the vegetable. There was also a thriving coal industry nearby, which made heating the forcing sheds easy and cheap. 
Rhubarb's popularity boomed during the 1930s and 1940s. During that time, the Yorkshire Triangle was shipping out so much rhubarb that there were even special trains running daily known as the Rhubarb Express, with whole cars stuffed to the gills with tons and tons of rhubarb. During World War II, local rhubarb was a staple of the British diet, considered so important that the government put a cap on the price so ordinary people could continue to afford it. But then the war ended, and the unthinkable happened. People turned away from rhubarb as new flavors became available to them for the first time. After the Second World War, refrigerated transport brought in tropical fruits. So a nation that was tired of rhubarb had other things offered to them, right up to the very um, modern tropical fruits that we have today. So rhubarb has to compete with those. Another issue was that forced rhubarb was expensive to produce. There's all that painstaking work done by hand, the fact that you have to leave roots in the fields for years before you can harvest, and the costs of heating the forcing sheds. During its heyday, there were over 200 forced rhubarb growers in the rhubarb triangle. But today... There are 11 left, uh, and we expect it to go lower than that. As a fourth-generation rhubarb grower, Janet grew up listening to her father wax poetic about forced rhubarb. It helped that the forcing sheds were off-limits to children, Imagine the damage excited little feet could do. So the sheds took on a mystical quality in her father's memories. And my father says he remembers quite clearly as a little boy. He'd always longed to go behind that secret door and see what was there where his grandfather and father were disappearing. And one day he said he clearly remembers being taken by the hand by his grandfather and taken into the forcing shed. He fell in love with the crop and knew that was what he wanted to grow. But Janet resisted rhubarb's pull, at least at first. She studied biology and got a job as a medical scientific officer at a hospital. But many a sunny day I'd be looking out of the window and thinking, I wonder what they're doing today. So I suppose my heart was still there. When her sons were born, she decided to jump back into the family business. And since then, she's both presided over and helped spark something amazing. She calls it a rhubarb renaissance. And rhubarb has been having a renaissance because today uh, the population here certainly has got this desire for tangy flavors. So rhubarb's at the top of the list. In 2010, after a campaign led by Janet, Yorkshire Forest Rhubarb was awarded Protected Designation of Origin status by the European Commission. Just like, say, Parmigiano-Reggiano from Italy or Champagne from France. We're amongst those humble rhubarb, which we're very proud of. And nobody can call their rhubarb Yorkshire Forest Rhubarb when it doesn't come from the rhubarb triangle. So that's very important for the growers that are left. Forced rhubarb is not readily available outside the Yorkshire Triangle, so if you want to give it a try, you'll have to make a trip there during the brief window in winter when it's harvested. While you're in town, you can take a tour of the forcing shed at Janet's farm. Visit E. Oldroyd and Sons online for more information. This episode was produced with additional reporting by Amanda McGowan. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. Our production team includes 
Dylan Thuris, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Johanna Mayer, Baudelaire Seuss, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. I'm Eric Grundhauser, and remember, stay curious. Witness Docs from Stitcher.